It's just so good to worship together. I love being together. Again, I just want to welcome you. So glad that you are here. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. God, what a delight to be in your presence, God, to know that you are here with us, to be gathered together as one family here in this place to sing your praises. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you have created us and that you have called us to yourself. Even despite of all of our sins and brokenness, you long to be near us. You long to tell us who we are. May yours be the voice we listen to. And so now as we look at your word, be with us, we pray. Speak to us through your spirit. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and give us hope in your great name. We pray these things for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Who are you? I mean, how would you answer that? Right, right now in this moment, if you were to think about that, who are you? What words, what ideas, what descriptors would you add to, to begin to put a little puzzle together for that big, big question? My poor kids. Um, you know, one of the joys, I guess, of, of being, you know, in a family together with me as a pastor is that I kind of, I get to test things out on them uh, throughout the week, you know, because I'm thinking about this all week I, and doing all that. And so, so this week, uh, I asked them that question. And, and parents, uh, it's a really good question to ask your kids, especially if you want to mess with their heads, right? Who are you? And, and when I asked David, he's, he's six, uh, his instant response, without hesitation, was, Dad, who do you think I am? He took, put it right, right back on me, and he started, you know, sort of giggling uncontrollably. Uh, he'd never thought about such a, a bizarre question. Eden, she's four. When I asked her, she simply said, I'm, I'm a human. And she just kind of moved on from there. Um, but David was stuck. Uh, in fact, he kind of pestered me, right? Remember the rest of the evening, you kept asking me, you kept saying, I, I have no idea who I am. I said, Dad, seriously? Who am I? Right? And kids, you, you want to know the answer to that question, don't you? And, and all jokes aside, parents, it's probably a really good question to occasionally ask your children. You are shaping their identity after all. But it's not just kids who want to know who they are. I want to know the answer to that question. I want to, to know who I am and, and what, what does it mean to, to live life, to, to be human. I, I want to know. I mean, don't, don't we all go through life wondering, trying to figure out, trying to come up with at least somewhat reasonably satisfying answer for the definition of your existence? It seems as if we humans are the only ones who worry about it too, doesn't it? It's hard to imagine a horse or a dog or a fly sitting back wondering to themselves, I wonder who I am really. But we humans, we're consumed with this question. And, and kids, you might look at sports or grades or your, your friends to tell you who you are. And adults, we look in the same places, don't we? And we look at whether or not we're, we're successful or how much money we have or how many people like our Facebook posts or what kind of job or family we have. We, we look everywhere. We're, we're desperate to know who we are. And we ask famous people to tell us. 
We ask the products we buy to tell us anyone around us. I mean, won't someone or something please tell me who I am? Well, this past week, thinking about this, uh, I did what most of us do when faced with a seemingly unanswerable existential question. I googled it. Uh, who am I, Google? I mean, they know everything else about me. I thought it was at least worth, worth a shot. And the first hit that came up was the, the who am I test, very top of the page. And so I took it. Who am I? Well, I mean, great. I'm, I'm a series of pie charts, you know, <laughs> a handful of, of percentages, some cute images, and a, and a bunch of little buzzwords, right, that are supposed to sort of sum up the very definition of my existence in a test that took me 10 minutes to take, right? And, and you can see right there, who am I? You know, I'm you know, only kind of agreeable. I'm sort of neurotic. I don't really like people. I'm a controlling perfectionist, uh, yada, 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 right? Thanks a lot, internet, you know, for this great eye-opening experience of who I am. But all jokes aside, I mean, in all transparency, I stand before you as a person who almost never feels entirely sure of who I am. I can't be alone here, right? I mean, isn't this why we live such fragmented, distracted, impersonal lives? I want answers. I think there's only one place that we can look for these answers. Only one thing that can tell us. Friends, you've got to follow your heart. <coughs> mm. Sorry, just threw up a little bit. Uh, no, that's not the answer. Follow your heart. You My heart is the worst. That is not where we look for these answers. There's only, some of you are like, did he really say it? Others of you were like, well, yeah, of course. That's what, that's what you know, that's what we're supposed to do. Is it? No, that's, that's the worst idea ever, okay? You cannot come up with this answer on your own. The people around you can't come up with this answer for you. Only the one who made you, only God can tell you who you are. That's it. And we're going to look at what he has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. As Paul, the, the apostle, writes this letter, he's writing to this church at Corinth, and they are a messed up little church. I mean, they completely messed up. And so Paul writes to them, and he's having to, uh, to defend his ministry. He's having to defend his identity as a follower of Jesus and the identity of all believers there in that place. I mean, he's really sort of going, going to bat there as he writes this letter. And for, for us this year, right, we've been, we've been going through the Bible um, together, the whole Bible. We're at this point now, at the tail end, we're trying to just sort of figure out what does it mean then to live this life, right? This, this life of following Jesus. How does it unpack here? What, is, what does God have to say about it? And in 2 Corinthians 5, we get one of the most compelling answers to one of life's most essential questions. Who are you? Only God can tell you who you are. So let's look what he has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
Who are you? If you are a believer in Jesus, you were dead, but now you're alive. That's who you are, alive. I mean, apart from Christ, the Bible teaches that without him, we are dead, and dead people cannot do anything to rescue themselves, right? There's nothing that can be done for a dead person unless God intervenes. A dead person is helpless, and yet the Bible teaches here in, in this part, God says that in the process, the very process of becoming a Christian, you died. It's another, another kind of death. The you before Jesus, dead and buried. The you now with Jesus, alive in his. And that, that's why Paul says, those who live no longer live for themselves. I mean, of course they don't. Themselves died. All that's left of you is Christ. From death to life. And I know that I, I, I say this often, but I'm convinced I cannot possibly say it often enough. Jesus did not come to make good people better. He didn't even come to make nasty people decent. He came to make dead people live. He didn't come to give your kids a few good morals. He didn't come to make you feel a little bit better about your mistakes. He didn't come to, so that you could look down on others. He didn't even come to help you manage your sins. He came to kill you. The dead, broken, sinful you. And start over fresh with someone new. You brought to life again. This kind of reminds me a little bit of a time when Kelly and I were first dating. We lived in downtown Chicago. Um, we were out on a date, and, and she was just so enamored in my presence, you know. Um, and who can blame her, right? Okay. Uh, that she, she stepped out in front of a bus. Um, I mean, the way I tell it, she was enamored in my presence. The way she tells it, she was just trying to find any way to end that date as quick as possible. Um, <laughs> but regardless, right, I, I reached out, I grabbed her, and I pulled her back. I, I saved her life. So for those of you who are, you know, wondering how I convinced such an amazing woman uh, to marry me, that's how, okay? What, what choice did she have at that point, right? I saved her. Her life now belongs to me. <laughs> of course not, right? It, it doesn't work that way. Human relationships don't work that way. And yet, Paul is saying that with God, that's exactly how it works. Because we already belong to him because he's our creator, right? And so, by, by very nature of him making us, we're his. And yet when he raises us from death to life, it's like we belong to him anew, afresh. That he is safe. We, we don't have a life of our own anymore. We are his. So who are you? God says you were dead. But now you are alive. And yet we look everywhere else for life, don't we? For happiness, wholeness, acceptance, security, all these unsatisfying things that we run after that promise life but only deliver death. The only way to stop running after these things, after money and sex and success and leisure, the only way is to let God tell you who you are. And he says your life is no longer yours. You belong to him. But that's not all. And it gets even better as this text continues. Who are you? 
You were old, but now you're new. Verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. The, the old you, the you before Jesus, whatever that was, what, I mean, what were you like before Jesus? Or what, what would you be like now had you not encountered him? That old is gone. And what's left is, is new. A new you. And, and, and what you have, what you are, is the start of the new creation. I mean, do you follow what Paul is saying? I mean, if you're familiar with, with the Bible at all, you know that the, the, all of reality is moving towards new creation, right? That, that, that it's not, heaven is not some sort of ethereal, you know, spiritual clouds, harps kinds of thing. That God is going to remake this world, this heart, this life. All will be whole and perfect and beautiful and new. And that hasn't happened yet, right? And yet Paul says that it has. That you are the start of the new creation, that you are the beginning of what he is going to do with all of reality, that it has already begun in you, whole and perfect and beautiful and completely and fully loved, holy in his presence. It has begun in you, and what he has begun, he will finish. I mean, what does God want with a bunch of old, crusty, worn-down, sin-plagued humans to make us new and if you look in the text i mean it even surprises paul almost right he says behold behold you're new behold it's like he can't even hardly believe it with, with amazement with shock wow what has god done another college memory sorry for this trip down memory lane um anybody here ever go dumpster diving anybody yeah, a few people. I'm sorry, right? It's kind of the worst. Um, my, my roommate my freshman year was uh, very much from Tennessee. Um, and I say this with all affection, but total redneck, okay? I mean, like something straight out of Duck Dynasty, this guy. And he loved dumpster diving. And so he, he talked me into going with him a couple times. And if you don't know what that is, it's as awful as it sounds, okay? It's pilfering through other people's trash, almost to the point of diving into their dumpsters, hence the name, to find something that you want to keep for yourself. So we did this a few times, and, and particularly in college, it's, it's for furniture, right? You're, you're searching for something to, 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 you know, put in your dorm room. And so we, we would go out, and we would find old, discarded, unwanted hideous items, and we'd bring them back, right? And we would love them as if they were new, and they're ours, and we would decorate, as you can imagine, our very beautiful trash heap of a dorm room with them. That, that's, that's the idea of dumpster diving. I think, I think that's what Paul is saying God is doing with us. Now, now it's not that we're, we're trash, okay? I want to be careful there. Uh, we are made in God's image, and therefore we are absolutely precious to him. And yet, Apart from Christ, we are unloved, unwanted, old and empty, and we end up on the trash heap. When our, when our previous owner is done with us, that's sin. When he's had his way with us, when he's taken all that he can get from us, he leaves us discarded and alone. Unwanted. That's, that's who I was. But Jesus makes us new. 
And he doesn't just dive down into the dumpster so that he can decorate his dorm room with a bunch of nasty hodgepodge furniture. He, he doesn't even just call us new or pretend we're new or love us so much it's as if we're new. No, he makes us new, it says. What sin has discarded, Jesus claims, and he makes us new. I mean, who does God say that you are? Brand new. And yet we revert back to our old patterns, don't we? I mean, that's what your sin is. If you are a believer, your sin is old and dead. It's no longer your master. It doesn't define you anymore. You're not enslaved to it. And yet we resurrect that old person like some zombie hungry for flesh. That's all it is. Sin has no place in your life anymore. It is old and dead. Confess it, turn from it, and move on. God says you're new. I tell you, at that point, I feel like that's, that could be enough, right? We could just stop here. But God has more to say. We're alive we're new. Well, what else, what else do we need? There's, there's two more things that Paul mentions here. Who are you? God says you were an enemy, but now you're a friend. I mean, sin is treason, right? We declared war on the God who made us. If, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I say this with all compassion and tenderness, but if, if you are not, you have no greater enemy than God himself. But Jesus, in in Jesus, enemies become friends. Look what it says, verse 18. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He reconciled us. That means that he, that he brought us back together. It means that we once had a relationship with God, right? In the garden, all was fine. We were friends with God. We rebelled against him. We chose to become his enemies. And now in Christ, I mean, like, like a, a husband and wife after a brutal divorce, Jesus brings us back with joy and delight, and, and, and real friendship. It says, not counting our sins against us, he says. Forgiven. No more guilt, no more, no more shame. But you know, forgiveness isn't enough, right? I mean, sometimes that's all we, we focus on, right? But forgiveness only takes care of the things that I've done wrong. What about my overall failure simply just to be good enough? I mean, I'm, I, don't, I don't just do bad things, but God's standard of goodness, I don't even come close to it. But, but look, what, look what he says in verse 21. Paul says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a little bit of a confusing sentence. Let me try to explain a little bit. But essentially, he's saying that sinless Jesus, right? The, the only perfect person who ever lived, he became our sin. He took on our sin. He substituted himself. So he died in our place where we should have died. Jesus dies. 
But he doesn't just take our sin. Do you, do you see that? He gives us his righteousness. And this is one of the most amazing verses, in my opinion, in the whole Bible. It says that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. Believer, you are his righteousness. You are God's goodness. You are his purity, his generosity, his, his patience, his kindness. You are his goodness, all the holiness, all the kindness that he is. Who are you? You are the very goodness of God. Therefore, he's made you his friend. You think about this. I mean, if that is who you are, the, the absolute goodness of God in human form found now in you through Jesus, if that is who you are, think about this. Why do we hide from others and from God? Think about that. We, we, we don't believe this at all, do we? We certainly don't live it. We allow shame and fear to control us. We think we have to manipulate God to get his attention, don't we? We have to clean ourselves up just enough so he'll, so he'll notice us, uh, impress, so that we can impress him. Or even think about this. We get so consumed with what others think of us. If you believed, really believed, that you were the goodness of God, and if you really believe that, you wouldn't care what other people think about you. I mean, just for a moment, like, seriously, how much of your life, how much of my life do I spend trying to prove to myself and to God and to everybody else that I'm good enough, that, that I'm worth being a human? Like what, maybe like 97%, right? All the time, we're consumed with it, and yet God himself has given us his goodness. He said, you are my goodness. You are my friend. And only God can tell you who you are. It's pretty amazing. But lest we think this is all about us, there's one more here. God says you were alienated, but now you're a co-worker. Verse 18 here. Go back there. It says, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And skip down to verse 19 towards the end. Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says that we are working together with him. That you are God's co-worker. I mean, just think about that. Not only has God given you new life, right? Not, not only has he made you new and made you his goodness, his, his friend. He's made us, you and me, his co-workers. Partners in the gospel. Ambassadors for this thing called reconciliation. That's an interesting word, right? This idea of an ambassador. But, but essentially, when we send an ambassador as a country to another nation, that person is really no longer their own, right? They are there to do whatever our nation has told them to do while they're there. They can't do what they want to do. They can't do what that nation in which they are now living wants them to do. Their life is not their own. They're there with a mission. And Paul is saying the same is, is true, true of us. That this is the job he's given us to do. And this, this reconciliation that God gives us, this work that we are to be about is both vertical and horizontal. It's vertical uh, in that we, we show others how to be reconciled with God, right? 
makes sense. And it's when we share our faith with someone. Who, who have you shared your faith with or shared your life with? Who have you invited to church or invited to be a part of your community group? To help others discover reconciliation with God is part of the very definition of who we now are. I mean, evangelism isn't something we do. It's something we are. Because we're his co-workers. Who will you tell? But this reconciliation, it's also horizontal. I mean, we can't just stop here, right? It goes this way as, as well. I mean, how can we, as people who have been reconciled, how can we facilitate reconciliation between others? Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Democrat, Republican, different races, different nations. I mean, there's no shortage of people who hate each other, right? And part of the very definition of who we now are is to be reconcilers between marriages, families, friends, at work, at school. I mean, listen, Christians should never be alienated from other Christians. You should never be okay with that. Frankly, if you are in Christ, you should never be okay with being alienated from anyone. It's a denial of who we are. We're co-workers in reconciliation with the God who made us. And yet we kind of prefer a silent partnership, don't we? You know, just kind of keep it in the background, as quiet as possible. We don't want to share our faith. We don't want to forgive those who have hurt us or apologize to those we've hurt. We don't want to get involved in the mess of other people's lives, trying to bring reconciliation with them. And some of us, frankly, find great joy in being part of the problem, don't we? Instead of being what God demands, part of the solution. This work isn't an option. Only God can tell you who you are, and God calls you his co-worker. That means we've got to get off our hands and do something. Who am I? I'm alive. I am new. I'm a friend of God's because I have his very goodness now within me and I am his co-worker. In short, I am his. Church, you are his. Why don't we look like it? right? Let's be honest, we don't look very alive. I don't, I don't feel particularly new. I'm not that good of a friend, and most days we really don't want to be his co-worker. If this is God, who God says you are, how do we actually live this out? Well, let me just mention three things for us. Believe, remind, and tell. Believe. Okay, so if you have not given your life to Jesus. I mean, this is where, this is where it begins. If you've not made that, that step into this life of faith, then you are still those other things that God says, right? Dead, old enemies, alienated. And as Paul said here to the church at Corinth, I want to say the same words to you. He said, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now is the day of salvation, he said. I know you want to know who you are, if that describes you. I know you want to, right? We all want to so, so badly. What's, what's stopping you from letting him tell you who you are? Or maybe you've done that already. But still, you, you just don't, you don't really feel it, right? 
Um, you can hear what God calls you and even think, hey, that's, that's really great, Nathan. That's really great. This is all good stuff. And then just sort of, you know, go on our way, do our own thing. But, but do you really believe that you are who God says you are? Or are you still listening to the other voices? There's a lot of voices, aren't there? And these voices are loud. Voices that tell you that you are only as good as your performance. The voice that, that tells you you will never be good enough and you'll never change, so why even bother? The voice that says the only way for you to be happy is to go out and grab it on your own. Or the voice that says it's, it's all about you and you've got to earn it, you've got to work for it. I mean, we hear these voices all around us all the time and they are so loud, aren't they? We can't merely believe the truth because the truth gets crowded out with the voices around us. You've got to remind yourself who you are all the time. I read a book recently that contained one of the most obvious and yet I think profound ideas I'd heard in a really long time. Let me read what it says. It says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. No one talks to you more than you do. And therefore, no one else in your life has as much influence in your life as you do because that voice inside your head, it never shuts up, right? It's always, it's always going. It's, even now, it's going. It's telling you, you know, what to believe, what's true, what's right, what's wrong, who you are and who you're not, over and over. It's always telling you who you are. So what are you telling yourself? That, that I, I need money to, to feel safe? that I need sex to feel loved, that I need the perfect family to feel valued, that I need to be successful in my work in order to be good enough. What, what is that voice telling you? Or do you, do you tell yourself, remind yourself, you know what, I'm alive. I'm alive now. I, I don't need to turn to any of these other things to, to give me life. And I am new. Those old patterns, they are old patterns. They have no hold on me anymore. And I I'm the very goodness of God. His, I am friends with him. I don't need to be consumed with what other people think of me or weighed down with shame or fear or anxiety, those things that so quickly pull in. And I, I am his coworker. I can be brave about something larger than myself. That is who I am. And maybe if we remind ourselves enough, maybe then we'll just actually, just maybe a tiny bit, a little bit, sort of kind of begin to believe it. And that's when change starts to happen. I mean, this is why the spiritual disciplines are so important. You know, those, those outdated things like prayer and Bible study and solitude. Because those things, they're not, they're not merely legalistic habits. They are structured opportunities to once again tell yourself the story of who you are. To tell yourself who God says you are. If you aren't practicing those disciplines, you will never experience the fullness of change that God offers to you. Never. You will never know the joy that's fully offered. You will never grasp the beauty of letting God tell you who you are. And is there anything better than hearing these words from him? Believe, remind, and you've got to tell. Tell yourself who you are. Tell the the Christians around you, who they are, look deeply into another person's eyes and say to them, you are his. Which implies that 
there are people in your life that you have that kind of relationship with that you're able to tell. We need that. We need to hear that from other people, and they need to hear it from us, the people right now sitting around you, right? All of us struggling with, they need to hear. If we, we can believe and we can see that God tells us this, but there's something so powerful about hearing another person who follows this same Jesus look you in the eyes and say, you are his it goes deep within us when we can actually hear those words articulated. Who, who will you tell? Tell your kids. I mean, they long to hear it from you. Only God can tell you who, who you are, but the very next best thing is to hear God's words through the mouth of someone else who loves you and cares for you and wants to help you on this path. And tell the people in your life who don't know Christ. Tell them who they can become. Tell them about the reconciliation that they can have with one another, all this bickering and fighting that we do, that it doesn't have to be this way. Praise God, he tells us who we are. And it struck me when I asked David, my son, that question, that his first response was, Dad, you tell me who I am. I don't want to make too much of that. I mean, he's only six, right? But I'm convinced that that is because deep down for each of us, we know that that answer, it cannot come from within. It's got to come from somewhere else, from something outside of us. And we don't like that, right? Because we, we want to be in control. We want to be the master of our own fate. We, and in fact, some of you are probably even a little bit offended at the very idea that it doesn't come from any, that you don't get to decide who you are. Because we like saying really stupid things like follow your heart and you got to find yourself and, you know, be true to who you are and blah, blah, blah. Let God tell you who you are. When we do, when we let him define our identity, there's such joy and freedom and life. Instead of looking for it for myself, always searching, always desperate for somebody to just tell me, to say, wait a second, God tells me, he tells me who I am and he knows me better than I know myself and he loves me more than anyone else ever possibly could and he died to to prove it to me. That is the God that we serve. Let him tell you who you are. We're desperate to know. I am desperate to know, and he is desperate to tell us. Will you let him tell you? Who are you? You are his. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you desperate. Desperate to believe what your word so clearly teaches. And not just believe it as, as a list of facts that we get to subscribe to that have very little bearing on our lives, but God, help us to believe it deep within, to root it deep within our hearts, to know that this is who you through your son Jesus have, have called us, have made us. And change us with this truth. Change me with this truth. Change my family. Change our church. Change our neighborhood and communities everywhere around us, God. We know you long to continue to bring your work of reconciliation. Do that through us and do it in us, we pray. We beg you, God. God, for those who are still waiting, God, I pray that they would hear these words. And know that as Paul said, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of your favor. So Lord Jesus, we come to you and we continue to give our life to you. 
And we ask you to continue to define who we are. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.